It's summer 1693, on the island of St. Marie, just off the northeast coast of Madagascar. On the pristine white sand beaches of this tropical paradise, 14 men from Thomas Tew's pirate crew prepare for a fight to the death. Tew and his men recently plundered a Mughal ship headed for the Ottoman Empire bagging an historic haul worth over a hundred thousand pounds in gold and silver. But despite their unprecedented success, some of the men aren't satisfied with their shares of twelve hundred pounds a man. They want more, and they're willing to die for it. Consumed by greed, the fourteen men pool their money together and agree to fight it out for the collective prize it's all or nothing. They divide themselves into two groups. By the end, two survivors should be left standing. Each will be up 8,400 pounds and 12 shipmates down. Then, those two survivors will have a decision to make. A life or death game of double or quits. The entire process is conducted in typically pirate fashion. Orderly, democratic, and horrifically violent. One of the pirates, John Rowe, a 21-year-old New Englander, is picked to fight in the second group. He sits outside the circle where sailors, traders, native Malagasy, and other spectators crowd to view the spectacle. Thomas Tew watches on from a distance, like an emperor in the stands of a gladiator pit. A war veteran, a hardened privateer, and now a pirate, Tew's seen a lot. But even he is somewhat surprised by this senseless savagery. The first group of seven pirates grip their cutlasses and daggers tight, waiting for the signal. A bell sounds. Suddenly, they run towards one another, swinging and hacking. It's a bloodbath. They chop and stab, impulsive and rash. Almost as soon as it starts, over half the group are murdered. It's blink or you miss it. One pirate rolls to the edge of the circle, lying in the dirt by John's feet. He's screaming and holding his stomach. John stands staring down at the now lifeless man, paralyzed with fear. What has he gotten himself into? Swept up in the collective madness, he's about to lose everything. The first round is over. The victor doesn't celebrate. He stands alone, stunned. It's time for the second group. After the bodies are removed, the next seven pirates step into the circle. They're all anxious. John waits for someone to call it off, but no one does. The fight commences. Terrified hands, slick with gore, quickly lose grip of their blades. It becomes a bare-knuckle brawl. John stands motionless, gaping at the horrifying scene raging about him. And he does so successfully. And 
until it comes down to the final three pirates. John, still standing by, watches as a small sailor whose name he doesn't know is dispatched by large ogre of a man, a once jolly Welshman called Owen. Owen, apparently forgetting the jokes and good times they had shared in the past, picks up a blade from the ground and lunges at John. John somehow manages to parry the oncoming blade, but he loses his footing. He stumbles, falling back on the sand, wincing, he waits for the killing blow. John takes his final breath as a man, and a collective gasp goes up from the watching crowd. As his head falls back, he takes a last look at the faces in the crowd, and at the amity in the distance, where the ill-fated treasure is stored. What's it worth now? Thomas Chew turns away. Dozens of his men have decided to remain in the Indian Ocean. The rest will take their chances back home. He hopes this sorry scene isn't an omen for the journey ahead. I'm Tom Morton, and welcome to Real Pirates. The show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. Join us as we set sail under the black flag, alongside such legendary figures as Blackbeard, Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny, and Mary Reed. We'll reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the seven seas, the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, making it hard to separate fact from fiction. Who were they? Terrorists or freedom fighters? Cold-blooded killers or heroic underdogs? As it turns out, the truth is far stranger than fiction. Another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Though Thomas Chew is anchored in a bustling pirate port of Madagascar, he is still technically operating as a privateer. He was commissioned by a consortium of gentlemen in Bermuda 
to raid French enslaving factories in West Africa. But that all changed when they were blown off course. After that, well, he took the initiative. His backers in Bermuda are concerned. For all they know, Tew is dead. It's certainly more likely than the truth that Tew has turned pirate and plundered the greatest single prize any mariner has ever taken. But can he get away with it? And should he return, how will his backers receive him? In previous eras, privateers could engage in widespread violence at sea and return home as a hero. Francis Drake was knighted. The famous buccaneer Henry Morgan was knighted and made royal governor of Jamaica. But times are changing. Dr. James Rankin is a historian and an authority on pirates. It's important to understand that in the 1670s and 80s, pressure was already beginning to build, emanating predominantly from the sort of mercantile elite in London to really begin to assert some sort of control over violence and plunder at sea. And so there had been obviously people who had gone to the Indian Ocean, who had engaged in acts of piracy in that area prior to Thomas Chew. And so really this is a period where you begin to see a shift. With the growing complexities of global trade, enemies and allies are blurred with shifting political realities. What Tew has done in the Red Sea is a step into the unknown. Not only has Tew attacked a peaceful nation and plundered their vessels, he's also spat in the eye of England's commercial interests and enraged the powerful East India Company. Eric J. Dolan is author of Black Flag's Blue Waters, the epic history of America's most notorious pirates. England was totally opposed to piracy, and especially piracy in the Indian Ocean, because these pirates were attacking Mughal ships. And the English East India Company, one of the bulwarks of the English economy, was dependent on the good relations that they had with the Mughal Empire to continue the flow of goods into England. So these pirates were threatening the relationship that the English East India Company had with the Mughal Empire. So they were a real, a real threat. Tew could try and disappear, but he has a wife and two children in Rhode Island to think about. Others have successfully bought their freedom. And money is not an issue for Tew, just the gold and silver alone is worth over 20 million pounds today. No, his only choice is to pray for a favorable wind and an understanding audience. Tew decides to return to Bermuda first to pay off his financial backers. After all, they're bound to be pleased with the astonishing return on their investment. Getting them on side will be key to his survival. But once again, Tew is blown off course. As he nears the final stretch of the journey across the Atlantic, a violent gale forces the Amity northwards. In the age of sail, nature always has the last word. Tew is forced to improvise again. He sails to the only friendly harbor open to him, 
he heads home to Newport, Rhode Island. Exactly how friendly, you'll have to find out. It's April 1694. The heavily laden Amity, sitting low in the water, sails slowly into Newport at dusk. Docked and anchored, Tew considers what to do with the vast quantity of precious goods and hard cash sat in the hold. Their cargo won't stay secret for long. The only way to stop rumors from spreading is for Tew to go to the top himself. Tew tells the customs officers patrolling the harbor that he bears goods for the governor. He also perhaps drops a few silver coins into their pockets for good measure. Tew travels to Rhode Island Governor Caleb Carr's plantation with a generous gift. It's unknown what Tew tells the governor. Perhaps he claims it's legal plunder from the French, or salvage from a wreck, or a prize taken in self-defense. Whatever he says, Carr either knows exactly where the exotic coinage comes from, or accepts whatever tale he's told. Hear no evil, see no evil. When Thomas too went back to Newport, he did grease a few local palms to make his re-entry into society smoother. But that was par for the course. That was common behavior at the time of any pirate, whether they were initially supported by colonial governors or, in some cases, there were pirates who just happened into port with a lot of money and they wanted to talk to the right officials to grease some palms so that they could be unmolested. And that official was almost always the local colonial governor. As Tew returns to the Amity, it's easy to imagine his relief. It seems as if he might have got away with it. Only a handful of souls know the truth. Now they just need to quickly and quietly disband the crew. But whether through drunken boasts or gossiping locals, it's not long before the word is out. Rhode Islanders gather at the harbor to marvel at the pirates' treasures, and to their great relief, they are cheered and adored. Tew is a hero, a celebrity, Rhode Island's great native son. A local sailor has traveled halfway across the globe, battled the heathen moors, and brought treasures back for the benefit of his beloved hometown. He got there and he was the talk of the town because here's this guy came back with a lot of money and his pirates. They, they each shared probably perhaps upwards of a thousand pounds sterling, which at the time, an average laborer in the colonies might have only earned 15 pounds per year. So that was a truly eye-popping amount of money to have in your pocket, so to speak. I think when we come back to sort of how two makes this work, just the extent of the loot that he brought back with him was probably a key factor in preventing more serious consequences from coming down and from, from exceeding that commission. In the cash-strapped colonies, any source of income is a good one, no matter where it comes from. Few colonists would shed a tear if it came at the cost of England's honor abroad. The Red Sea men were viewed by the colonies and the colonists for many years as an unadulterated good. They were contributing to the local economy. They were bringing goods that the colonists often had difficult time obtaining. 
because a lot of the best East Indian goods were first snatched up in England and in Europe, and they got the dregs of what was left over. The Red Sea men also provided hard currency, which was in short supply in the colonies, and the colonists needed desperately to purchase all those English goods that the Crown and Parliament wanted the colonies to purchase to help enrich the empire. So the colonists supported and promoted piracy. And it's not as if she was targeting English shipping or even European shipping after all. Fighting the Muslims or the Moors, as they may have generically thought, is a practice as old as time. Some would argue his mission is sanctified by God. I think the fact that the Mughals were viewed and the Muslims were viewed as infidels in the colony did make it easier to accept the horrors that were involved from actually stealing from other people and in some cases killing them. In the colonies, when they were looking at what was happening at the Red Sea halfway around the world, it wasn't viewed as such a sin. And there were some pirates that even in recorded testimony saying that attacking these infidels, these Muslims, they didn't view that as a sin. So it provided a rationalization justification. Not everyone receives Chu with open arms. A few pulpit-pounding clergymen decry his piracy. But it doesn't bother this pirate. Chu quickly adjusts to the role of conquering hero. He loves the public attention and now brags openly with neighbors and strangers alike. He makes no bones about where he traveled, who he plundered, and how much he stole. He even auctions off items of treasure to cure his socialites. He literally parades his success through the streets, swathed in the finest fabrics, jewels lining every finger and hugging his neck. Having gotten away with it, Tew finally sends word to the Amity's backers in Bermuda. The backers are pleasantly surprised to hear from the captain. They dispatch a convoy to obtain their cut of the loot. His biggest sponsor receives 540 pounds for the money he fronted to Chew, and 3,000 pounds worth of treasure. No questions asked. Pleasure doing business. But just as everything is settling down for Chew, his sailors come to him very much unsettled. Many have squandered their money on women and booze, or lost it at cards or dice. They enjoyed what they got, but they too want retirement money. They want to head out on another voyage. As if the greatest haul in history isn't enough. Chew tries to put them off. They got lucky. The risks involved aren't worth it. And obtaining another commission won't be easy. The pleas persist. But Chew remains firm. There won't be another voyage. Truth be told, Thomas Chew is thriving in America, building a new life and a new reputation. He makes frequent trips to New York in connection with pirate trade shipments to Madagascar, keeping his hand involved in the black market trade. In New York, Thomas Chew's reputation precedes him. He soon attracts the attention of the Colonel Governor, Benjamin Fletcher. Luckily for Chew, Fletcher is also more interested in his wealth than its source. 
1694, New York's economy is in a predictably perilous state. The governor is hanging on to power. Soldiers patrol the streets and threaten people who vote incorrectly against him. Tew might well smirk that a royal colony should show less regard for democracy than a pirate ship. Perhaps these politicians are a far worse breed of villain. In October 1694, New York, a striking black carriage with gold-plated wheels makes its way from the harbor to the governor's hall. Inside the carriage, Thomas Tew sits next to Governor Fletcher, a pirate and the highest authority in the land. Enjoy a cordial conversation. As the two men become acquainted, Tew entertains the governor with stories of the high seas. Fletcher laughs and smiles, just occasionally wincing at the oaths and coarse sailor's tongue. In truth, he can't stand base language. He presents Tew with a Bible as a result. No offense is taken, though. In fact, the pirate captain is willing to reform his ways, or at least mend his appearance. He accepts the social gulf between them. It's a gulf he intends to close. He wears his finest clothes, his trusty red velvet coat tied with silver lace and pearl buttons. Despite their differences, both men are wealthy and both seem equally out of place in their surroundings. The streets of New York are a misery. The buildings and houses speeding by are falling apart. The smell speaks volumes about the poor sanitation. The city has never really recovered from both Dutch and English revolutions that have come in recent decades. And now, like most colonies, New York is also financially crippled by King William's War. No goods, no trade, and most importantly, no money. New York needs the extra-legal income streams from privateers more than ever. Fletcher needs Tew, and as a result, he courts him with the trappings of high society. He was paraded around in the governor's chariot, and that's just an indication of how accepted Red Sea piracy was. They were not viewed by their peers as being outlaws, as being criminals who should be prosecuted. They were viewed, in a sense, as entrepreneurs who should be praised. And the colonial governors, in some cases, and the other merchants who invested in these sham privateering voyages were a little bit like early venture capitalists. When Chu returns, one of the key things that he brings, I mean, he brings a lot of wealth, but he brings it in a form that is extremely important to and necessary for these developing colonial economies, which is hard cash. That, I think, is one of the things that for Fletcher was key, was that this was potentially a way to buoy up colonial economies that for a long time had really struggled to get their hands on silver and gold, which were the lifeblood of these early modern economies. And suddenly, Chu arrives, and it's a, a massive cash injection into an economy that at that time was right out on the sort of very periphery of the English empire. 
That night, Tew's wife and children are invited to a gala function in the governor's hall. They dance in silks embroidered with diamonds of the Orient, like swirling advertisements for the riches of the East. Though some whisper it, they are also clearly an advertisement for Tew's piracy. Mostly the aristocrats and socialites are intrigued, and some are even charmed. The experience leaves Tew yearning for more. Fletcher's grooming works. In October 1694, Tew suddenly decides to go back out to sea. After rejecting multiple pleas from his crew, it's difficult to know what's changed his mind, but one suspects his cozy relationship with the governor and his high society friends give him reassurance. Or maybe the taste of the high life ignited Tew's pirate greed, the urge to parlay his wealth into something greater. It's difficult to divine precisely what Chu's motivations were for the second voyage. One possible source, I think, or one possible thing that he may have been returning to try to get a hold of, right? he had wealth, but potentially maybe he could get status. And to do that, he needed the kind of political patronage that could get you the sorts of postings the sorts of honors that you needed to rise within late 17th century society. On the 8th of November, 1694, just seven months on from his return to the Americas, Tew visits Governor Fletcher at his mansion to obtain a new privateering commission. Fletcher is only too happy to oblige, especially after he's presented with a generous donation of 300 pounds. In exchange, Fletcher showers Tew with gifts, including a precious gold watch. And like that, the commission to attack the French outposts on the St. Lawrence River is obtained. Although both parties know, Tew has no intention of following these provisions. Fletcher is, again, an interesting figure. Fletcher's open association with Tew is, is deeply embarrassing. There's a sort of a lot of people scrambling to distance themselves from Fletcher or just to sort of show that, in fact, his actions were, were sort of personal corruption. But I do think that he had, you know, very real reasons that were rooted in the specific colonial and sort of economic challenges of New York at that time that led him to be more open to partnering with someone like Thomas Chu and to potentially initiating this de facto partnership between privateers or pirateers, if you will, and New York's sort of mercantile elite. So it's, it would be a little too easy, I think, to see Fletcher as just himself deeply personally corrupt. I think he was reacting to very real pressures, economic and political pressures that were on him that existed in the, in the New York colony at that time. The Amity is well-traveled and aging badly, but she is quickly repaired and refit with six additional guns, taking it to 14 in total. Tew secures a new crew, around 40 to 60 men, including many familiar faces, all eager to repeat their early success. Legend also has it that, along with the colors of England and New York, they carry another flag on board, a black flag emblazoned with a powerful white hand gripping a cutlass. 
it seems the crew, its captain, and its backers are all quite clear of the purpose of this voyage. Days before the Amity's departure, news spreads. Rhode Island's native son is once again traveling to the wealth-laden waterways of the East. Hundreds of sailors flock to the wharf of Newport to see him off and to try and sign on. Some sailors are so desperate to join the pirate expedition that they sneak aboard the Amity as stowaways. Everybody wanted to go out with him because he had come back once filthy rich, and of course he was going to do it again because uh, past performance is always an accurate predictor of future performance. <laughs> so people were, were leaving their farms, uh, leaving their parents behind to sign on with Thomas II under the Amity. And it, there was so much excitement that a number of other ships from the colonies decided to join Thomas II's little armada. Tew is accompanied by two other vessels, captained by Richard Want and Thomas Wake. Want served as Tew's first mate during their initial trip. He sails in his six-gun, 60-man brigantine, the Dolphin. Thomas Wake, on the other hand, is a fellow Rhode Islander by birth. His ship is the 10-gun, 70-man bark, Susanna. With these powerful consorts and the refitted Amity, Tew must feel invincible. In truth, Tew isn't expecting much resistance, given how easy the first expedition was. Despite the heavily armed Muslim ships they encountered previously, they proved easy prey. In November 1694, as they make sail, Tew's biggest concern is how to split the plunder. He waves farewell to his family from the quarterdeck assuring them that he will return even wealthier than before and that this will be his final voyage. Little does he know, only one of the statements is true. Six months later, the Amity and her consorts arrive in Madagascar. The island is busier than ever. It appears pirates have flocked to the Indian Ocean to catch the annual fleet of pilgrims sailing from Mecca. Tew has competition. After a short stop to careen and resupply, they head north, following the familiar route to Bab el-Mandeb, the Gate of Tears, at the mouth of the Red Sea. It's 1695. Summer is coming to an end. Last time, they were forced to wait months before encountering their prey. But luck seems to be on their side. In the passage between the Arabian Peninsula and the Horn of Africa, aboard the Amity, the lookout spots not one sail, but three. A small fleet of vessels is sailing straight towards them. It's far in the distance and hard to make out. But Tew is confident it has to be from the Muslim pilgrimage. Jackpot. The quartermaster barks orders to the sailors on deck, and up goes the black flag. Richard Wand and Thomas Wake sail alongside. They steel themselves for battle. The vessels on the horizon approach quickly, almost too fast. It puts the sluggish amity to shame. The flotilla gets closer. Tew's men 
start hollering and hyping themselves up. They wave their cutlasses in the air. But this time, Tew stands silent. He's closely studying the oncoming vessels through his eyeglass. He can't believe what he sees. The lines of the ship's hulls, the rigging. These aren't Mughal treasure ships. These are frigates, three of them, and led by a 46-gun man of war. Beginning to panic, he desperately tries to make out the colors of the flags. Red and white, English. A realization dawns on Tew. It may be his own ships that are the prey, but it's too late. They're almost alongside. As the man of war approaches, from bowsprit to rudder, it dwarfs the Amity. It must have 150 men aboard, but it doesn't fire on them. It's not even prepared for battle. But then Tew notices something else. These Englishmen aren't dressed in naval uniforms. In fact, the ragtag mix of nations and faces can only mean one thing. Pirates. Tew, Want, and Wake join the pirate commanders aboard their flagship, the large man of war called the Fancy. Tew learns that a 25-ship Mughal convoy will depart from the Arabian port of Mocha and make its way through the Red Sea towards India. They plan to attack it, and they can use Tew's help. But Tew is insulted. Do they not know who he is? Tew is the legend in these waters, for now. His nose is especially put out of joint by the cocky young captain of the fancy, a man called Henry Avery. He can't know that Avery will soon rise to infamy himself, creating a legend that not even he can match. Meanwhile, in spite of his reluctance to follow others, Tew has little choice. His crew are all for the plan. They'll need every gun against the 25-strong Mughal fleet. Besides, the Fancy is the bigger and faster ship. It's obvious the Amity's best days are behind her. They agree to an alliance, attack the Mughal fleet, split the plunder six ways, although each pirate secretly thinks the same thing. There's too many shares. In the end, it's always winner-takes-all. If they get a chance to steal a bigger slice, they'll take it in a heartbeat. Looking back two years, the Red Sea is different now to how it was when Tew visited all that time ago. Perhaps he only has himself to blame. Many of the new arrivals have heard stories of his success and have followed in his footsteps. The second voyage, he is one of many by the time he returns to the Red Sea. And I think that really underscores how quickly and how deeply the story of Chu's success circulated throughout the sort of maritime community in the Atlantic. And what's important I think about Chu is that he makes this score and he returns to the Atlantic and brings this incredibly rich cargo with him. And that is really, I think, a decisive moment where the thought of going to the Indian Ocean, which may have seemed like a possibility, suddenly becomes much more appealing because it does seem to offer the promise 
of the sort of plunder that would be enough to overcome people's apprehensions about the potential legal trammels that they might be running into. So that opens up the possibility that perhaps might otherwise not have really occurred to a lot of people. But there are other consequences to Tew's inspiring voyage. More pirates in the Red Sea means that sooner or later, the Mughal Empire will catch on. Their ships won't remain undefended for long. As much as this story has circulated through the Atlantic and inspired a wave of predominantly English, but also Dutch and some other European mariners to try their hand at this, it has also spread throughout the Indian Ocean. And the Mughals are very much prepared or more prepared this time around. If this is the case, this may be the last time Tew can get away with his crimes before the risks increase. He has to make it count. It's night in August 1695. The dark sea appears like a black expanse under the moonless sky. Nothing stirs. The pirates must rely on the sound of the water to alert them of ships sailing in the dark. But it's not enough. By dawn's light, Tew spots what he missed at night. The pilgrim fleet from Mocha has snuck past the pirates undetected. But they haven't got far enough away. In a burst of activity, the pirate armada makes haste and begins a pursuit. But the Amity's age is showing. She can't keep pace with the others. Fearing missing out, Tew gives the order to break off and pursue a smaller vessel trailing at the back of the fleet. The other pirates, including Want and Wake, zip past him. They're after the bigger ships, the bigger prizes, leaving the small one behind for Tew. But Tew is no amateur. There's a good chance that this straggler is slowed by the weight of her cargo. Finally, Tew catches up to the Mughal ship. In reality, it's no smaller than the Amity. The pirates send over a warning shot. The shot flies close to her stern, narrowly missing and crashing into the water. But the Mughal don't surrender. They fire back. It's not what Tew was expecting. His men are equally surprised. Tew gives the order to open fire, but aiming for the mast. They'll disable her and swarm aboard. A barrage of shots are exchanged. Soon, thick clouds of smoke fill the deck of the Amity. For a moment, the pirates are not only blind to the enemy, but blind to each other. The whistle of cannonballs can be heard as red-hot rounds of lead fly through the air, punching holes in the acrid smoke surrounding them. Suddenly, over the sound of smashing wood and rigging, the pirates hear something worse. A howl of pain. Then silence. Without orders, the shooting stops. The Amity falls astern, whilst the Mughal ship flees. And as the smoke clears, the pirates see a body. 
face down on the deck, disemboweled and dismembered, practically vaporized by a cannonball. He's barely recognizable. If it weren't for the silver-hemmed velvet jacket, jewel-encrusted dagger, and the gold watch gifted to him by Governor Fletcher, Thomas Tew is dead. The Amity defeated crawls back to Madagascar. Here, the pirates retire their worn-out ship and capture another vessel and go on with their trade. They never return to New York, leaving Governor Fletcher waiting, forever wondering what became of Tew and his treasure. Tew had it all, risked everything, and paid the price. So Thomas Tew's life was relatively short, or at least his pirate life. It had some high points, it had some definite low points, but he became one of the pirates that people would often refer back to, especially his first voyage, as being an example of great success that they wanted to emulate. And there's no doubt that Thomas Tew's reputation in the early part of his pirating career is what helped launch other would-be pirates to sail into the Indian Ocean. In some ways, Chew is both the sort of inspirational and the cautionary tale of this brief but incredibly intense period of piracy, right? He, he makes his fortune and then he loses his life. Though Chew lies dead, he has carved out a path of success for other pirates to go on pursuing Mughal riches. He is one of the greats who united the Indo-Atlantic worlds through trade and transport, terror and violence. He inspired imitators and opened the doors for the likes of Henry Avery and later William Kidd to enter the fray. And enter it. They will. Next week on Real Pirates. The stage is set for one of the greatest names in piracy to emerge. The great pirate, alias Long Ben. Captain Henry Avery. His actions will catapult him into legend. He'll be celebrated as a folk hero in his own lifetime, and he'll bring the ire of the authorities down upon pirates like never before. We delve into his backstory to see how this notorious figure rose from a small fishing village to become an international villain. Find out next week on Real Pirates. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser, executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes, developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast, produced by McAllister Bexon, written by Aman Khalid, sound supervisor Tom Pink, edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer, sound design by Matthias Torres Sole, mixmaster by Cody Reynolds Shaw, music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. <laughs> <laughs>